One day, when I was still a schoolgirl in Caracas and my father sat transfixed by mechanisms in the long, narrow room, I worked up the courage to interrupt him. I asked him when it was that he had first looked inside a watch. He swung the light aside, turned to me, and raised his magnifying visor so that I could see his eyes. They were mazes of moss and still gently round despite the wrinkles. He called me towards him and put his arm around my back protectively as he spoke. He explained to me that he had become enthralled by watch mechanisms in Prague when he was a young man. He said that it was during a period when he had so much time on his hands that he felt that time had stopped. How could time have stopped? Because, he said, and you will understand this when you are older, sometimes you just feel that everything around you has come to an end. You feel that you're completely alone, that time is frozen, and that you are invisible. At first, you might feel exhilarated by the sense of freedom, but then you'll be frightened that you are lost and you will never be able to go back. He explained that when he first felt this, he had been isolated and afraid and had prized open his watch case to verify that time was indeed passing. The rhythm of the watch might have been imagined. Sound was not enough. He needed to see and touch it. It was the first time that he had dismantled a mechanism. The turning wheels ticking each second away had reassured him. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. You've just been listening to Ariana Neumann reading from her new book, When Time Stopped. Ariana, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you for having me here, Greg. You describe when time stopped as, and I quote here, a quest for answers. When was the seed of curiosity planted? Well, I think it began decades ago. It began when I was a little girl in Caracas, and I grew up the daughter of a very successful industrialist, an older man, he was 50 when I came along, who was very, very engaged in the present and in the now. He was not only involved in industry, he was involved in the arts, in education, and in philanthropy. He really was a Renaissance man. But there was a darkness to him. There was, a, there was something there that didn't quite match with his surroundings. We lived in Venezuela. It was a vibrant, beautiful country filled with promise. And I think it all started when I was eight or nine, I grew up as an only child and I formed a detective club with my cousins and some friends and we would spy on people that were in the house. And one of those afternoons that we were spying on people, one of my cousins reported that my father had moved a box and he had moved a box from this very long, narrow room, which was windowless, which he always kept locked and which he used to repair watches. And he had moved a box from there to a bookshelf in a room that we called the library because it was filled with books. 
And he had done so in an in odd fashion, my cousin reported. And I waited for everyone to go. And then I went and found the box myself. And I think I had expected some sort of treasure, perhaps some jeweled watches in there. And it was light when I picked it up and I opened it. And I was very disappointed to just find the odd paper here and there. They seemed old and uninteresting. A lot of them were in a language I didn't understand or I didn't speak. And then all of a sudden there was a pink card and that pink card had a photograph of my father. So it caught my attention. And then as I looked a little bit more carefully, it had a stamp of Hitler and it was dated Berlin 1943, which made no sense because I, by then, what the only thing I really knew about my father was that he had been born in Prague and that he had come to Venezuela in 1949. So Berlin 1943 made no sense. And as I looked more carefully, the part where it said name didn't have my father's name, which was Hans Neumann. It had someone else's name. And that really jolted me and I was terrified. And I think it was at that moment that all these other little cracks that should have been evident per before perhaps started appearing. So his reluctance to talk about the past, the fact that I didn't know anything about his family, about his parents or if he had any, I mean, I just knew that he had a brother and that he had emigrated with him, but there was never any talk about the life before. There were no photographs of the family. There was absolutely nothing about his past. And, and then there were nightmares. My father would wake up, not once, but many, many times, screaming. And he would wake up the whole household and he would be screaming and covered in sweat and very agitated. And he was always screaming in either German or Czech. And all those little moments came to the fore and made me realize that actually the mystery that I wanted to solve as a child detective was really the mystery of my father. So it began with a box of letters and documents, but where did it go from there? It developed very slowly. So that was around 1980, I would think. And that, I, that box disappeared. I tried to ask questions, but I was told by, well, by my mother that, you know, my father had had a very difficult war and that I shouldn't ask too many questions because he found it upsetting. And I think, I think when you grow up around someone who's been traumatized by something, and you love them. Any curiosity that you have comes second to your love for them. So you don't want to upset them. You don't want to hurt them. So every time I, you know, I, I calibrated my questions carefully to see if I could get some answers from him. And he, his hands would start to shake. Every question would be met with a wall of silence. So I, I didn't really ask very many questions because when I did, I got <laughs> no answers really. And we then took a trip to Prague in 1990 after uh, the Berlin Wall had fallen after the Velvet Revolution. And I had thought perhaps then he would answer more questions. And the only thing that did happen was that at some stage he took me to the apartment where um, the family had lived in Prague, he said, before the war. And he stopped at a railway station, a disused railway station in a, a what seemed like a suburb of Prague, so not in the center. And there he started to shake and to cry and said, this is where we said goodbye. So I think those were the clues that I had as I was growing up. There was also another moment when I arrived at university in America and someone approached me and said, we should meet because we're both Latin American, we're both Jewish and we're both good looking. 
And I was completely baffled because no one had mentioned the word Jewish to me in reference to me or to my father. So, in fact, you had no idea that you had a Jewish heritage? None whatsoever, until that moment when this young man <laughs> came over and said that. And, and I replied rather wittily, which I don't do very often. But I said, listen, I'm not Jewish and you're not good looking. So this is, <laughs> this is not going to work. And I spoke to my father and I said, listen, this Mexican boy came over and I think his expression was, you have Jewish blood. And I said this to my father and my father basically just put the phone down. I mean, he did say before, you absolutely must never use that expression. That is what the Nazis said about us. So by then, obviously, it all started to click. But, but again, he didn't speak about it at all. And it wasn't until he died in 2001 that um, it all came together, because in addition to being a Renaissance man, he was a collector of things. So he collected everything from art to watches. He had 297 of those to, to every little scrap of paper that had ever come his way. And when he died, I was his only surviving child. I went to Venezuela and I expected to spend days, weeks, sorting out through all the papers and all the files. And I wasn't actually really looking forward to it at all, as you can imagine. And I got there and everything had been cleared away except for this box, the same box that I had found as a child detective with that same ID. And this time it was just crammed with other papers of his life during the war. Your research has been quite comprehensive. And at the end of the book, you provide a long list of some of the resources that you included in your research. As I read When Time Stopped, it occurred to me that your research was as much about connecting or reconnecting with people as it was about books and archives. Was that a natural consequences of your research or something you set out to do? You know, I think it was a natural consequence of my research. I think what I set out to do was two things. I, I wanted to solve the mystery of my father because I, I loved a mystery and because I loved him and I wanted to understand him better. So that was my initial quest. And I, you know, I think we all have a need to know where we come from. And I think maybe that need is not quite as apparent when you're a teenager or in your 20s. But when you start having children and you start thinking about what you're going to pass on to them, I think where you come from becomes more important. So I had that need. And I, as I started reading the letters, for example, so all these boxes miraculously came my way, including another box. So the second box that arrived was a box of letters that had been written by my grandparents in the concentration camp of Terezin, which is just outside of Prague. And those letters, as I started to read them, were filled with humanity. And it enabled me to actually figure out who my grandparents were never spoken about, who, who they were as people. And I think I then started realizing how important it was actually to have that human connection, not only with people that were dead, but as I asked questions, the kindness of people that were around, the kindness of people that were descendants of survivors or descendants of people that helped my family really buoyed me. So I, I have gained an enormous amount of friends, actually, uh, and, and an enormous amount of family. And it has been a lot about that, those connections. And I think that has made the journey so much more magical and so much more wonderful than it would have been if it had just been documents that I had been scouring through. Because a lot of what I uncovered were these beautiful anecdotes of, of bravery and courage and defiance and love that were told to me by people who were descendants of, of the people that either survived or that helped my family during the war. 
in the early pages of your book, it seems that your father's life was, in a sense, ruled by time, and his life in Venezuela seems to have been very structured. And he clearly had a fascination for clocks. As you said, he had a collection of 297, which is a phenomenal amount by anyone's standards, uh, but also possessed a necessary eye for detail and patience required to repair those clocks and timepieces of all kinds. But as a young man, he, he seems to have been much more compulsive and carefree. Apparently, he was always late. How do you explain this transformation from someone who was always late to, to someone who began a life that was so structured? You know, it's funny because when I first encountered the first, there, there were family letters which described my father. I thought maybe there was another, there was another Handa or another Hans, because uh, someone else, because I just didn't recognize the father that I knew in these descriptions. As I started reading more and more, it became evident that it, it obviously was my father. I think that young, chaotic prankster that my father was in 1936 to 1942, really, would have never survived the war. So I think there was a transformation which was necessary for him to survive the war. And, and obviously the trauma of um, when 1942, his parents are deported. And when his turn comes in 1943, and he knows by then, he knows from the letters that have been snuck out of the concentration camp, that he must do whatever he can to avoid being transported. He, he realizes that he has to become much more methodical about his behavior, much more serious, because there's absolutely no way that he can do what he does, and, which is crazy and saves his life. So I think you have a little bit, It's to me in 1943, you have a, still a little bit of that prankster who says, my only way to survive is going to be to fool them by going to the belly of the beast, by going to the center of it all, by going to the place where they least expect a Jew to hide which is Berlin. So I think that you still have a little bit of the prankster there. But then when he's in Berlin, he obviously has to be very, very disciplined about how he is because he he cannot let his cover be blown. That man who survives the war is then the father that I meet. In a section of the book, you describe the the spectre of the Nazi advance across Europe, the annexation of Austria, the occupation of the Czech Sudetenland, things like the law passed that insisted all Jews displayed a letter J on their clothing. And yet, among all of this trauma, you come across a photo album and you describe its contents, and everybody seems to be smiling in these photos despite what's going on around them. How do you reconcile those two, I guess, opposites? You know, I think we all have an instinct to find the beauty and to find what is good in our lives. And I think it is that if, if you read Viktor Frankl or if you read anyone that any, any of the accounts of the Holocaust, I think it is that hope and that ability to be positive that keeps people alive. I think in, in a way it, it's rather wonderful and beautiful because what the Nazis tried to do, and they tried to do so very systematically and, and almost imperceptibly by passing all these laws, is they tried to dehumanize these people that they persecuted. And and I think it's almost an act of defiance to not allow them to do it. And despite the encroaching net, people managed to find moments of joy and moments of, of you know, just normal everyday life that brought them normal everyday feelings. 
So among all these terrible events from this period in history, there are also these great stories of hope. And I was particularly drawn to Zdenka. Can you tell me a little about her? Oh, Zdenka is just wonderful. I think she's, to me, she really is the heroine of the book. Because my family really had no choice. They, they were being persecuted. And I suppose they had a choice to be defiant or a choice to obey. And they, in most cases, chose to be defiant or as defiant as they could under the circumstances. But Stenka is completely different. So Stenka is in her 20s. She is absolutely gorgeous inside and out. And she is studying law. She drives her own car. She's independent. She's strong. She is financially independent as well because her grandfather had built all these beautiful buildings around Prague. And she derived income from them. So she could have easily, and she wasn't Jewish, which was obviously absolutely key. And she could have turned the other way. She could have had a relationship with anyone that she wanted. And she chose to be with my uncle. She chose to help the family. And she chose to take enormous risks when I think everyone around her was urging her to do the opposite and save herself. So that, that she, to me, is the true hero. Of, of the piece, and she does crazy things. There's an interesting passage that you describe where she actually enters the the ghetto, the Teretzin ghetto, secretly to deliver letters and, and supplies. I find that to be an incredible feat of bravery. It is brave beyond belief. And I think people say, well, it's, you know, if you don't know a lot about Teresin, it would seem impossible. But Teresin wasn't a normal concentration camp in the sense that it was built as an 18th century um, town for uh, as barracks. And it's a fortified town, so it has a wall around it and it has entrances which were policed, but it doesn't have, it wasn't a purpose-built concentration camp with barbed wire and, and which was impossible to penetrate. And yet still, most people didn't penetrate. <laughs> most people didn't go inside a camp and actually most people didn't leave it. And she, she had contacts in the resistance, so she knew how to do it. But it was still, I mean, it was a huge risk. I mean, it was, it was, you know, giving a cigarette to a Jew was punishable by law. So to actually sneak inside a camp to take supplies to my grandparents who were in there was absolutely astounding. And, and I, she was incredibly brave and, 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 and incredibly loving to the point that she risked her own life not once but twice she snuck in. They had set up a system of couriers, of illegal couriers, which again is very unusual, so that my grandparents had a little bit of extra food and a little bit of extra currency and any of the other supplies that they might need, uh, matches, batteries, uh, sweaters, things like that. And when those couriers failed, Stenka snuck in. And she actually, she snuck in the first time just to visit my grandmother because my grandmother had been deported in, in May 1942 and the family had no idea if she was alive or where she was until late summer 1942. And when they discovered that she was in Terezin, which is just a few kilometers outside of Prague, Zdenka said, I'm, I'm going in. And she did. So that was the first time. And there's a beautiful letter from my grandmother that says that she had been so buoyed and so uplifted by the beautiful Zdenka and that they had just held each other and cried. And then she kept the family fed and, and, and alive for two years in, 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 in Terezin. And it was really thanks to her. 
Why was it so important for you to visit Terrison and what did you expect to take from that experience? I, I felt I needed to visit Terrison because my grandparents were there for two years and they were very much alive there despite all the horrors that took place there. Their letters were filled with moments which made them very real and very human to me. So it, and you have to understand not only did I never meet my grandparents, but they were never spoken about. So I, I, what when I really got to know them, I mean, there's a, a bit in the letters beforehand that allowed me to piece together what they were like. But what really enabled me to get to know them were the letters that were snuck out of the camps from or the camp rather from 1942 to 1944. So I felt it was important for me to go there. And it is a horrendous place, and yet they still manage to find moments of, of, of joy there. There's a wonderful letter of my grandfather where he says that he has been so buoyed and so happy by the parcels that he's received. And my grandfather was a very dour, strict man, and, and I think also a terrible singer. But the letter where he says, I was so happy to receive your news and your letters that I caught myself crooning a song on my way to work. You know, my, they, they both, my grandfather and my grandmother, managed to find, first they managed to make new friends and they managed to find moments of joy. So I felt it was very important for my sake to just go and, and see where it is that they lived. And, and they, they were moved from one place to the other. So I think they had about, between the two, about 14 different residences, if, if you can call them that. And, and I felt it was really important for me to get a sense of the place uh, and to get a sense of, of them, really, by going there. I would have never been able to visit the place they died, for example, and I haven't been, and I don't know that I ever will be. But because in Terezin they, they were still very much alive and very much human and, and very much my grandparents, I mean, it was a difficult place to visit, but it, it wasn't terrible, and I, I made sure... Well, I made sure, I think my family made sure they went along with me just to hold my hand physically and metaphorically and, and, and just having that reminder that it was, it was then 2017, having them there made it all much easier. I'm in awe of people that can continue to write through what must surely be a personally traumatic experience or process how did you separate yourself emotionally from the story in, in order to actually write it, the, the practice of writing it? There were two things, and there was one where I was able to separate myself much more. So the process of investigation, the research, what I, what I, what I like to call the detective work, I, it was much easier to separate myself from that. It was much easier to become the detective who was solving a mystery and, and you know, forget a little bit that the mystery really was my father and, and his life before and my grandparents and my cousins and my uncles. There was a certain distance and there was a certain moment of, yes, I found the piece that, you know, fits in this bit of the jigsaw and now it makes sense. So there were moments of, of triumph. The writing was very difficult. And at the same time, it's so cathartic and it's so important, I think, when you have a trauma to, to voice it and, and to speak about it. And I am, I hope, a better writer than I am, than I am a speaker. It was my way of processing it a, a little bit. So I think someone said the other day, your writing is so raw and so honest. And I think if that is true, it is because 
it was written as I processed it all, and it was written a, a little bit as therapy as well as a need to tell these stories for these people whose lives were cut short or who actually, even, even if they weren't cut short, who were unable to tell their own stories. I had a brilliantly happy childhood in a Venezuela that no longer exists, but that part was very easy and it was it's marvelous because uh, to me <laughs> because for me rather this whole process because I always wanted to be a detective and I always wanted to be a writer so this whole journey has has allowed me to do both <laughs> to do what I always wanted to do but but I'm doing it and I'm just thrilled Ariana Neumann thank you very much for joining me on the good reading magazine podcast it's been a great pleasure thank you Greg thank you very very much You've been listening to Ariana Neumann talk about her new book, When Time Stopped. It's published by Simon & Schuster and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.